I'm going to do the reading for our first session now. It's from Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. If you have a red Bible, we did put some on the tables. Um, It's page 1173. Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in the conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. It's a real joy to welcome Helen Thorne here today. Um, Until recently, she was the Director of Training and Mentoring at the London City Mission. But having had a chat with her this morning, she said she's moving on, and I'm sure we'll find out a little bit about that this morning. I personally haven't met Helen before today, although some of you may have met her or even heard her speak before. So I'm going to invite her up here and ask her a few questions as an introduction before she speaks. Good morning, Helen. Good morning. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and what was your job or what you're moving to. Uh, yeah, so I'm Helen. I live in southwest London uh, on the London-Surrey borders. Um, people always ask me about my family, so my patter is now. I'm single. I'm in my 50s. I live with cats. I'm not ashamed. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I'm genuinely enjoying life. I go to Dundonald Church, uh, which is a church uh, in Wimbledon, Rains Park, kind of area. And until recently, yes, I was the director of training at London City Mission. 
Uh, and there had the wonderful privilege of training people to be missionaries, uh, um, whether that's experienced people looking to specialise in mission in London, or whether that was really new Christians who, who wanted to move into mission. Uh, so it was just one of the best jobs in the world. And I'm really, on one level, sad to have left it. Uh, but the Lord's been calling me on to uh, a bit more of a patchwork kind of ministry. Mm. So in, I've already started as an advisor for the Women in Ministry track on a master's degree program um, for women wanting to get some theological education uh, run by Crosslands Training. Uh, and I'm about to start as the director of training for Biblical Counseling UK. So training churches across uh, England, well, across the world, in how to do pastoral care and discipleship uh, in biblical and gentle and wise ways. So a busy lady. <laughs> I'm not bored, yeah. <laughs> what would you say is a typical week for you when you were in your job? When I was in my job? Yeah. Well, well, there's never been such a thing as a typical mm. week. Um, so my old job was, I suppose my life is divided into three equal parts. There's always a training element. So whether that was training in the office or whether that was going around churches doing mm. trainings in mission or pastoral care, there was always an element of out and about uh, mm. teaching people about Jesus. Uh, about a third of my life is involved in writing, writing books or blogs or, mm. or things like that. Um, and as a standing joke, I only ever write on subjects that nobody wants to read about. <laughs> so I get to write on things like pornography and self-harm and domestic abuse mm. and all those really cheery topics, but, I, but really important topics as well, because mm. there are so many women uh, and men indeed mm. struggling in those areas. Uh, and then there's always just the general management strategy side of things. So when I was at London City Mission and when I'm going to be moving on uh, to these new roles, there's just lots of accounts and risk registers and mm. managing staff and all those highly exciting things that need to be done uh, to make sure an organisation is working well. Um, what would be your typical Saturday? If you weren't here today, what would you be doing? I'd be in another church doing exactly the same thing. Um, <laughs> Out of the 52 Saturdays in the year, I'm generally speaking in the church between 45, 40 to 45 of those Saturdays. Um, so it's very rare. Saturday's not my day off. Okay. Um, but what as, would you do on your day off? Uh, so my day off would probably be a long lie-in in the morning, um, a fried breakfast of some description, <laughs> um, a little bit of slobbing in front of uh, a movie, mm. uh, and then out with friends, um, probably for a Korean meal or a Thai meal in the evening. I'm slightly addicted to Korean food. Um, and then, just to show you, I am a little bit weird and quirky. Just as the sun goes down, I have my own bat detector. <laughs> so I can go out with my bat detector. Uh, it picks up e the, echo, the frequency of the echo locations. And you can say, oh, look, there's a pipistrel up there somewhere. Yeah, uh, we've got a bat box on the side of our house. Right. So, yeah. I'll come around with my bat detector. <laughs> <Not alone. laughs> Okay, just some quick fire, fun questions. Okay. Just answer what comes into your head. Tea or coffee? Neither. Ooh, what do you drink? Peppermint tea, maybe. Oh. Sweet or savoury? Savoury. Uh, books or films? <gasps> Don't make me choose. <laughs> Spa or gym? Spa. <laughs> dresses or jeans? Mm, probably dresses. <laughs> uh, strictly come dancing or call the midwife? Oh, <laughs> you know what? I honestly don't think I've ever watched either. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Ladies, we've got to educate her, haven't we? <laughs> I, I may have watched Strictly once. <laughs> uh, walking or swimming? Walking. Uh, football or rugby? 
You see, I probably actually prefer football, but if my pastor ever hears that, I'll get excommunicated. <laughs> so I might go for rugby. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Helen will be speaking to us in both of our morning sessions this morning, and obviously she'll be around all day for you to chat to her. Um, you may have noticed that there's some post-its on your table. If at any point you feel that there's a question you'd like to ask, we're going to have a question and answer session towards the end of the day. Uh, please just pop it on there and either bring it up here and put it on the table or pass it to one of us um, ladies this morning. Sorry, we haven't got the text and the phone. We've got post-its. <laughs> anyway, I'm now going to pass on over to Helen. So thank you very much for speaking to us this morning. Well, it is an absolute joy, uh, a privilege and a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, I've never actually been to Caterham before, uh, despite having a relative who lives here. Um, and so now I know where to come when I want the family reunion. And now I know which hill not to try walking up uh, first thing on a Saturday morning. Well, why don't we pray again, just as we uh, begin? Father God, thank you so much. Uh, that you have made us and you have made us to be uh, beautiful in your sight. Thank you uh, for this opportunity to spend time in your word together, for looking at it together as, as sisters in Christ. And we pray now that whether we are feeling wonderfully encouraged or we're here feeling utterly despondent, that by your spirit you'll meet us where we're at and lead us ever closer into a proper understanding of who you are and who you've made us to be. Amen. Well, what did you dream of being when you were a child? Did you ever sit there as a little girl and plan what your future might be? Uh, for me, it was uh, very simple. I was going to be a ballerina. I had the shoes, I had the leotard, I had Swan Lake on repeat on my record player, as I am that old to have records, not even tapes. I wanted to be dancing across the stage. I wanted to be not just in the chorus, but the dying swan. It was a childhood dream that lasted for years and years. Until that point, my ballet teacher said, Helen, I don't think you're really cut out for ballet. And it was shattered into little pieces. At that point, I decided I was going to be a musician. I, I learnt... Uh, Lots of instruments. Every birthday, I asked my parents for a new musical instrument. And it came to the point where I, I could play a, a number of things relatively competently. I was going to be a musician, I thought, until my father said, don't you think you ought to get a proper education, a proper job that's a little more stable? And so I went off and did a biochemistry degree and then became a musician. As children, we have lots of exciting ideas about what our life's going to be like. Maybe we think we're going to be married with a certain number of children, a certain kind of pet, live in a certain kind of house, do a certain kind of job. But while some of those dreams may have come true, I'm guessing for many of us, the reality of adult life is a little bit different. I am certainly not a ballerina. Just for fun, with a friend, I put on my point shoes uh, a few weeks ago, and I can guarantee, uh, without any hesitation, that I would fall and break my neck if I tried to dance on them now. I've settled into an adult life, where my dreams have drifted away, and I am in the reality of getting up each morning 
and doing the washing and doing the cooking and going to Sainsbury's and trying not to stockpile toilet paper because, quite frankly, there's none left in the shops anyway. I'm getting into the routine of going to work every day, which I love most of the time. The reality of coming home tired. The reality of moving away from wanting those exciting nights out to being thrilled by an exciting night in. It's the reality of bills, the reality of people in pain, the reality of busyness. That is what adult life is about. But maybe still, maybe still I've got a few dreams. Maybe you do too. Maybe when I quietly sit there, often on New Year's Eve with a blank sheet of paper going, I wonder, I wonder, Lord, where you might be leading me in the year ahead. Do you still have those little dreams inside you? I still quite like the idea of having chickens. I still like the idea of actually having a garden that's not a jungle. Sorry, a wildlife garden. No, a jungle. Uh, but actually having it nicely presented and growing all my own fruit and vegetables. I live quite near Surbiton where the good life was filmed all those years ago. And there's still a lot of people that pursue that back there. It's an adult dream, one that's maybe a little bit more achievable. Maybe you dream of what you're going to do when you retire. Maybe you dream of how your family is going to be. But how as Christians do we handle those dreams? Do we give in to what social media and says, just become whatever you want to be? Cut anyone out of your life if they're negative about it. Just pursue your dreams no matter what. Or do we go to the other extreme and just settle for life as it is now? Except that maybe it's a little bit too late to be dreaming the big stuff to be setting our sights too high. Well, whether your dreams are big or small, the bit of the Bible we're looking at this morning has a wonderful message. Your dreams are nowhere near exciting enough. God has got plans for each of our lives that surpass anything that I can dream of, surpass any career, surpass any family circumstance, even surpass my deep desire for fluffy chickens that will provide me with fresh eggs every morning. God has chosen us and called us for something way more exciting than we could ask or imagine. Now, this isn't a L'Oreal moment. God isn't sitting up in heaven looking down on his children going, wow, they're beautiful. I need to give them this stuff because they're worth it. And with a toss of our hair, we can sit here feeling wonderfully affirmed as women. That's not how it works. We are strugglers. We are sufferers. We are sinners. We're messy and broken human beings. But despite all that mess, despite all that brokenness, despite all that rebellion that might sit in our hearts, God has chosen us and called us to an extraordinary life. Don't be ridiculous. You might be saying in your mind, you're too polite to say it out loud, but maybe you're sitting there going, Helen, if you knew what a muddle my house was in, if you knew what a muddle my family was in, if you knew what a muddle my head and my heart was in, you wouldn't be saying things like that. Or maybe you're sitting there going, if you knew how old I was, if you knew how much pain I was in, if you knew how busy I was, if you knew how hard it was just to keep going day by day, you wouldn't be standing up in front of us saying there's something exciting ahead, that God's called me to something special. Well, if that's where you're at at the moment, come with me on a journey. 
And what we're going to do this morning is in our first session, we're going to look at who we are, who God has made us to be. And in our second session, look at who God has called us, how God has called us to live. And come and see that you are genuinely made for more than you are doing right now. More than you feel you are right now. It's hard to get our heads around because in the 21st century, we often find it hard to have a clear sense of who we are. In fact, our culture is almost designed to erode our self-image. We encourage as women to constantly be comparing ourselves to the women around us. And whether we're looking in magazines, on television programs, whether we're looking at social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever your social media of choice happens to be, we're constantly encouraged to look at other people's lives or look at just glimpses of other people's lives and see if we measure up or not. I guess most of us have done it in the quietness of our hearts. We've looked at some pictures on the internet and gone, wow, they've They've gone on a holiday like that. Oh, my life just doesn't measure up. Oh, wow, they've gone on a birthday celebration like that. I was in Weatherspoons having a quiet lunch. Wow, look at, look at how they're dressed. That's, that's an incredible outfit, that sense of style. Look at their hair. Their hair is not defying gravity. Do you ever have those moments, first thing in the morning, you look in the mirror and you just sit there and go, how is that even possible? And yet there are other people that just seem to emerge effortlessly from their homes, beautifully groomed, not a hair out of place. And maybe it's achievement. Someone's got a career that we can't even begin to dream of. Somebody has got a family that is just so together, where the children are polite and obedient and put things away at the end of the day. And then we look at our lives and go, we we don't measure up. We compare ourselves and so often we find ourselves wanting. And then maybe in the quietness of our hearts, we console ourselves with the fact that whilst we may not be as sorted and financially stable and glamorous as that group of people over there, at least we're doing better than this group of people over here. My goodness, they're a mess. I can console myself with the fact that I don't quite look like that. I don't quite act like that. As women, we're often tending to see ourselves somewhere on a ladder slightly envious of the people higher up, slightly relieved that we're not on the bottom rung. And culture encourages us to do that, but it erodes the sense of who we are because we're constantly looking at ourselves in some kind of spectrum rather than in absolutes. We forget who God has made us to be because we've constantly got our eyes on the women around us rather than him. And that leads us in all kinds of different directions. We enter into this kind of womanhood which seeks camouflage. Now, camouflage is a a deeply uh, personal concept to me. Uh, Those of you who've seen me up close may have noticed that I I have different pigmentation in different parts of my skin. Something that I found quite vexing when I was in my 20s. Now I'm in my 50s. I really don't care in the slightest. But when I was younger, I was told that there was an answer. An answer to all my woes about having different colour skin. And it was the camouflage unit. I could be referred by my doctor to go to this unit where they could tell me how to cover up all the things that were wrong in my skin. 
I thought about it momentarily and then realized I could not be bothered to do that every morning, so there was no point in going. But it kind of sums up our 21st century world. When we see ourselves on this spectrum and we realize that we are a little bit wanting compared to those around us, we have a culture that just encourages us to cover up who we truly are. Rather than celebrating and being content in all the messiness that God has made us, or God has made us perfect, we've messed it, we're encouraged to cover up, uh, maybe with our clothes. Now, I'm not suggesting we should go around in uh, sackcloth and ashes or black plastic sacks. There's nothing wrong in enjoying color and texture and style. But how often do we look at clothes not for their beauty, not for how uh, they uh, make us feel in terms of touch, but the fact that they maybe just hold that wobbly bit in uh, and stop it wobbling quite as much as we want it to. Or, or maybe because it's a colour that just, well, maybe we look a little slimmer that way. Or maybe something that's a, a bit more stylish. Or, or maybe we run to makeup. Not that there's anything wrong with wearing makeup per se, but we don't wear it just because it's fun or because we like colour or we like style. We wear it because we don't want people to know how tired we are. We wear it because we don't want people to know how stressed we are. We wear it because we want to look more confident, more alluring, more glamorous than some of the people around us. We put on this public image which hides how we really are struggling. And that kind of oozes into our conversation too. How are you? Oh, I'm fine, thank you. We lie through our smiling lips. We want people to think we're okay. We want people to think we're doing well because we have our eyes fixed on the other women around us. And sometimes we just go into overdrive and we change the things that we don't think are working. Crash dieting, going to the gym three or four times a week, maybe even having surgery so those wobbly bits go away completely. But all those things just erode our sense of self. They keep our eyes fixed on other people. They keep our eyes fixed on the outside of us. They keep our eyes discontent. They keep our our, our hearts alone. They make it our mission to pretend rather than to celebrate who God has made us to be. But it's not just our culture that can erode our sense of self. It's our painful, painful experiences too. I really don't know anyone in this church very well at all. I've spoken to a few of you uh, just a little bit. But I guarantee, if I were to have a conversation with each and every one of you, you'd have a story to tell. A story from the past, from the present, where things are really painful. A story about the future where you're worried about something that may or may not happen. We live in a broken, fallen world. Horrible things, as well as good things, crash in on our lives. And they change how we see ourselves. Maybe we have had abuse in the past or are facing abuse in the present. Someone is telling us that we are worthless and useless and good for nothing. And there's part of our brain that's starting to believe that. Maybe there's someone in our life that we have arguments with. And we just feel like we're never good enough for them. And we start to believe that, well, maybe we should just give up. 
Maybe we shouldn't try anymore. Maybe we just have to accept that we are failures. Maybe, just maybe, we really aren't any good. Maybe we've got fears about the future. I think for me, the biggest fear is, as a single woman uh, whose family have have all passed away, is is who's going to look after me when I'm old? When I'm 70, when I'm 80, when I'm 90, if, if God preserves me that long, who will be there? Who will visit? Who'll come and change the light bulbs? I occasionally have a, a little meltdown moment uh, and I say to uh, my friends around me, I'm going to die alone and I'm going to get eaten by my cats. And my friends who know that my love language is mockery uh, usually respond by going, yes, Helen, that's exactly how it's going to happen. But it's a real fear. It's a real fear that crashes in on me. Maybe your fears are different. Maybe they're worries about uh, how it's going to be looking after an elderly relative. Maybe it's going to be your own health. How is that going to preserve? How are your children going to turn out? Are they going to walk with the Lord? Are they going to be okay? We all have things that make us question who we are. And when we get that sense of discontent, when, when we wrestle with our identity and we're not solid, we're not stable, we turn in all kinds of different directions. Sometimes we feel so down about who we are, we feel we need to comfort ourselves. Maybe it's food, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's shopping, maybe it's pornography, whatever it is for you. We, we, we bring these negative things into our lives and use them as comfort. We all know as Christian women, don't we, that on that bad day when we're wobbling, when we feel like life is tumbling down, the best thing to do is to come home, to rest, to pray, to open our Bibles, to text a friend, to get some encouragement from those who would spur us on in our walk with God. But I'm guessing I'm not alone. When I say the simple word, hobnobs, how often at the end of a long day do we come back and just eat? Or do we come back at the long day and think, I just need to go online? How often do we comfort shop, retail therapy? It sounds so innocuous, doesn't it? But yet, it's just another way of responding to that messy identity and covering up the pain of who we really are. Maybe comfort's not your thing. Maybe you're someone that tries to control the world around you. Maybe it's the diet and the exercise, which in and of themselves aren't wrong, but if they're taken to extremes, well, they can cause even more pain. We feel like we can make ourselves better. If we could just be slimmer, if we could just be more toned, if we could just weigh less, if we could look better, maybe life would be better. Or maybe we try and control others around us. If we could just get those other significant people in the house to put socks in the washing bin, wouldn't life be worth living? Or maybe we try and self-cleanse. Maybe we try and uh, go onto the internet, watch an inspiring video about turning out the clutter from our lives. Which again, is not necessarily a bad thing. But if we genuinely want our life to be better, if we genuinely want to be living a life where we know that we're made for more, actually turning out last season's socks is not going to make that much difference. We think it'll make us feel better about ourselves. But it doesn't. 
And we get stuck. We get stuck in this world where we feel low, we feel down on ourselves, and we just console ourselves with little things, comfort, control, cleansing, comparing, camouflaging who we really are. And we might have a smile on our face, but deep inside, either we're looking down on people or we feel like the world is looking down on us. But where do we go? What do we do with that? If we're to genuinely believe we're made for more, we can't keep our eyes stuck there. We can't keep our eyes on what the world is saying or what our painful experiences have shouted at us. Well, in the book of James, it describes the Bible as a mirror. You see, we've all got different places we can look for our identity and our calling. We can look at our experiences, our painful experiences, in a bleak mirror, and we can see the message, you're useless, you're worthless, you're pathetic. Or or maybe for a few of us, we can even look in a rose-tinted mirror. Uh, One of my old bosses used to have, uh, her children used to have Barbie mirrors. Uh, They were pink. I mean, they were deeply, deeply pink. You know, pink mirror with a pink button and a pink brush and a pink comb. And you could press the pink button, probably with a nail that had been painted pink, with Barbie nail polish. uh, And you would get this message. You're beautiful. You're wonderful. You're perfect just the way you are. And it might feel affirming for a little while. But we know it's not true, don't we? We know we're not perfect just the way we are. Every time we we hear our mouths open, every time we interact with others, we are confronted with the fact that we're not perfect. So if we we know that the rose-tinted mirror of culture isn't right, if, if we know that the painful experience's bleak mirror isn't right either, where do we go? Well, James says, look at Scripture. Look at God. Because when we look at that mirror, we will see ourselves as we truly are and begin to see that we are made for something extraordinary. If you've got that passage in Ephesians that was uh, read to us a while ago, do you have that in front of you as we just whiz through some key points that are there? You see, we're not random accidents. We're not just biological anomalies. We're not just products of our culture of our families, of our experiences. We are children if we are in Christ. And we have a saviour who blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Now that doesn't mean that we've got everything that we want. We all know that, don't we? Clearly, we look around our lives, we know we don't have everything that we want. But it does mean that we have everything that we need. And it means that in spiritual terms, there is blessing beyond blessing waiting for us when we get to eternal life and perfection that's there. We have glimpses now. We have salvation. We have joy. We have a presence of the Lord. But there's even better to come. You see, we have a generous God who's worthy of our praise. That's why when Paul wrote this bit in Greek, it's one long sentence, all these verses that we've had read to us. He basically just takes this deep breath and he splurges out all these wonderful things about God and wonderful things about human beings. And he shows us that Jesus' work on the cross has implications that are just enormous. 
I mean, we know this story, don't we? We know how it goes, that sinners like us deserve condemnation, deserve God's wrath. But Jesus lived a perfect life. And in the biggest, most profound swap that's ever taken place in the history of the world, he took the wrath, the punishment that we deserved so that we could go free and have all the righteousness and all the benefits that he deserved. It's incredible, isn't it? To think of all of that sin taken away, all of that hope for the future. But you see, it's not just about the past and the present. Jesus' work on the cross isn't just about washing away the past so we can feel a little better about the crazy things we've done. It's not just about looking forward to the perfection of heaven, because that is going to be wonderful. It changes everything in the here and now. It means that we have a whole new life, a whole new being. We are brand new people. What does that life look like? Well, it's a life of knowing that we are chosen. Do you ever revel in that? Do you ever dwell in that wonderful truth? That before you were born, before your great-grandmother was born, before Queen Victoria was on the throne, before the Battle of Hastings in 1066, before dinosaurs were roaming the earth, you were on God's mind. That is how precious you are to him. You're not an afterthought. It wasn't that he was looking around Caterham a few years ago and went, oh, I feel a bit sorry for her. Let's nip her into the kingdom by the back door. No, he adores you so much. He's been thinking about you since before the creation of the world, thinking about you since before the start of time. And he has chosen you specifically to be part of his family. It's not random that you're a Christian. It's not even random that you're part of Oak Hall Church in Caterham. It's part of a plan. He has handpicked you, not because you deserve it, not because you've particularly impressed him, but he has handpicked you out of love and generosity to bring you into his family. And now you're there. He's handpicked you for a fantastic cause. He's handpicked you for a life of holiness and blamelessness. Whatever else we do with our life, whether that's career or family or or a combination of both, the headline is, your job description is to be holy and blameless for the glory of God. That is what he's chosen you for. He's chosen you to stand out and to be different, to be radically loving, to be radically generous, to be radically kind and radically forgiving. He's called you to start bearing more and more his family likeness. We know what it's like in our human families, don't we? We come more and more like our mothers as the years go on. Is it just me? Or did you spend your 20s going, I will never do that? And then by the time you get to your 40s and 50s, you're going, I am my mother. The things that she says, they're coming out of my mouth. And even as they're coming out of my mouth, my brain is going, no. But I am becoming more like my mum, which in many ways is a, a beautiful thing. And that's what it's meant to be like with us and God. We're adopted into his family and he's called us to become more like him. And as we go through our Christian life, we should be able to look back on our lives and go, wow, I, I am more patient I I am more kind. I I am more generous. Thank you, Lord, 
for changing me. And it's exciting when we can look back and see that change. It's usually slow. There are always evidences of us still messing up. No perfection this side of heaven. But a call. You see, we're we're made to be different. We're made to be like Jesus. And that happens as we're adopted into his family. To be his sons. Do I mean to be his sons? I mean, very rightly, we included daughters in our reading this morning. But there's something special about that first century context. What he's saying here is, you're not just part of the family. You're not just kind of in by the skin of your teeth. You are, whether you're male or female, the equivalent of a first century son. That is the one who inherits the lion's share. You're not a peripheral member of the family. You're the special member of the family. Right at the very core. And that means we're adopted for intimacy. We're adopted for security. To be part of a family that goes on forever, knowing that we are never going to get kicked out. Even on those moments when we say or do the craziest things, he's got us firmly in his hand. He's not going to let us go. You see, as, as Christians, we are chosen to be different, to be like Christ. We're made to be different. We're made to be secure. And all that brings God pleasure. Do you you think about that sometimes? As God saved you, he was in effect smiling. It wasn't an act of desperation. Oh dear, I probably ought to do something about the mess over there. It wasn't an act of duty. Well, I'm God, so I ought to do the right thing and save a group of people in Caterham. He took pleasure in choosing you. He took pleasure in adopting you. He took pleasure in making it possible to be in your family forever. You make God smile. You're made to be different. You're made to be secure. You're made to bring pleasure. And how does that work? Well, looking at verses 7 to 10, it's by being redeemed. It's God redeeming us that makes him happy. You see, it's meant to be this slave market kind of imagery. Again, we're going back to the first century again, where sadly it would be all too common for human beings to be bought and sold. And it's God saying, you were slaves to sin. You were hopeless and helpless. But I bought you back. I paid. I paid an immeasurable cost. Jesus' life is what it took to buy you back. But I did that because I wanted to. I forgave you because I wanted to. And he didn't just squeak in that forgiveness. He lavished us with grace, it says in Ephesians. Everything we could need and more. Do you ever get those moments where you sit there and think, oh, I'm guilty? Do you ever get those moments flicking back to the past going, I can't believe I was that stupid? No, no, you're forgiven. You're clean. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die in agony for everyone except for those women in Caterham that had done something way too irritating. No, he died for all of us. And his death was sufficient for all of us. There is no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ. Not a single little bit. 
We were made to be different. We were made to be secure. We were made to bring God pleasure. We were made to be clean. And we were made to be part of a family. See what it says in verses 7 to 10? We were united under Christ. We're already part of a united church. These people around you, they're not just your friends. They're not just your acquaintances. They are your sisters. We've even got some brothers. We're united with them too. And we are so closely united because we have the same father. We're indwelt by the same spirit as we'll look at in our second session. We're not finished yet. That unity will grow into eternity. But we're designed to be part of a family. And part of his eternal plan. You see, he's been thinking about these plans, purposed in Christ. This plan, you matter to it. All of us matter to it. It's not that God can't do his work without us, but he's designed it in such a way that he chooses to use us. We're part of his mission. Whatever your job, whatever your role, whether you're retired, whether you're just thinking about your first job, whether you're a a full-time mum, a mum with a job, whatever your situation, first and foremost, you're part of God's mission, saving mission. You are lifesavers. You have the, the ability and the call to take the message of hope to a dark and dying world and to show them light and life. That's an incredibly high calling. And for all this, in verses 11 to 14, we, we have shown that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're guaranteed that one day we're going to reach perfection. We're, we're set apart for life in the here and now. Can you see how special God has made you to be? It's his work, his glory. It's not that we're intrinsically special, but he has made us incredible. Made to be like Jesus. Made to be secure. You're made to bring God pleasure. Made to be clean. Made to be part of an intimate, loving family. Made for purpose in mission. Made to be perfect. Made for an incredible life as the Spirit leads us through. Is that how you see yourself? As you looked in the mirror this morning, did you just look at the wrinkles, the gray hairs, the mess, the fact that you hadn't washed the right tights to go with the right dress? Or did you look in that mirror and see someone that was fearfully and beautifully made? Not because our wobbly bits don't wobble, they wobble and they will keep wobbling for the foreseeable future. Not because we're all supermodels, not because we're all grade A students, not because we all have the career of our dreams, not because our families are all sorted, not because our kitchen is tidy, but because what Christ has done and what he has made us to be. And you know what? If we look in that right mirror, if we see ourselves as God has seen us, as God has made us, then rather than being women who compare and camouflage and change, rather than people that run to comfort and control and cleansing, we can be women who are content, who celebrate and commit ourselves to living wholeheartedly for him. You know our calling as women? 
is partly at least to look in that mirror and go, I am acceptable because of what Jesus has done. I don't care what the world says. I am not going to buy into the lies of my past experiences because Christ has said this and he does not lie. I am content in who he has made me to be. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't change that's needed. We'll look at that later. But it's not a change that's driven by shame, a change that's driven by fear, a change that's driven by other people. Because we are content in who God has made us to be. And any subsequent change is just a response to his calling. Part of our calling as women is to celebrate God's work in us and his work through us. It's exciting what God has done in us. I bet if I sat down with each and every one of you, I could find out stories about how God has worked in your life over the years and how he has used you to touch other people for his glory. And we can celebrate that. Because that is way more important than having a kitchen drawer that closes. And when we get that, we can commit ourselves to living wholeheartedly for him. Not divided, not distracted, but women that go for it with a passion. Made for more? Well, we'll look like what that looks like in practice in our next session. But for now, maybe just revel for a moment in who he has made you to be. Secure, Christ-like, bringing him pleasure, clean, part of a family, part of a mission, made to be looking forward to perfection and life. You really are made for more. Let's have a moment of silence and then pray together. Father God, we confess that all too often our eyes are not where you want them to be. Sometimes we think too highly of ourselves. Often we think far too lowly of ourselves. Help us, I pray, Lord, each and every one of us, to keep our eyes firmly fixed on you, and what you have said about each of us, what you have done to make us beautiful. Father, help us to reorientate our thinking, to, to trust you more and more, and to see you more clearly, and to commit ourselves to being content and celebrating and living wholeheartedly for your glory. Father, help us more and more to catch that vision of being made for more, Help us as we continue to go through this morning to go on that journey and to love being the women that you have made us to be. Amen. Helen, thank you so much for opening up God's word to us in such a real way. I think I felt like you were describing my life quite a lot of that time, but exactly what I needed to hear. Thank you. Um, we're going to have coffee time now, um, a chance just to chat through what you've been hearing, think about it a little bit more. Um, while you're doing that, 
Um, we've got a couple of bookstalls over here, so can I encourage you to have a look at those? There's the usual bookstall, a brilliant selection of books for all kinds of things. And then we've got a few specific books today um, that Helen has recommended to us. Um, and they're on the table over there. So have a look at them. I'm completely sorry that I forgot to tell you. How, I don't know how much any of them are. So go and have a look, and you can find out how much they all are. But um, there's a series called Five Things to Pray. This one's called For Your City. Um, this is one of the books that Helen has written. Um, and there's a whole range of them, Five Things to Pray for Your Family, for Your Church. Um, they're an excellent, excellent series of books. It takes all, it breaks down your city into all kinds of um, people, work, rest, governance, crime and gangs, marginalized people, all different aspects of your city. And then for each of those gives you five Bible verses and a little idea of how you can pray that Bible verse into that situation. And I've been recently going through the one about praying for uh, your church, and it's been so helpful for sometimes when situations, you don't really know how to pray, but it it teaches you to use the Bible to pray kind of what God would want into those situations. And it's so practical, so helpful. They're brilliant books. So grab the one about praying for your city. It does also apply to praying for your town. But grab any of them, really. They're excellent. Um, And and really, all the other books are based on this theme of identities. There's one called Mirror, Mirror, which looks particularly at the idea of kind of self-image and how we find our identity in Christ. Really warmly written, very engaging um, guy. Real truth, but put in a very kind of practical way. Um, Another book, I read this a few weeks ago. It's really excellent. Um, looks at this joyous truth of the fact that in God's eyes, we are perfect sinners. Sometimes we can feel that we are really, really sinful and kind of dwell on that side of things. Sometimes we can kind of overemphasize kind of God's grace and think that our sin doesn't matter so much. But this basically says God looks at us and just sees us every single day as completely perfect because of who Christ has made us, but also recognizes that we are sinners and that we need his help. And it just helps us to kind of get that balance of seeing that and living in the joy, actually, that that lives by having that right view of who we are in Christ. Um, excellent book called Identity Theft. This is, I don't know if I can say this, I feel this is how kind of one of those loose women programs would look if it was run by Christians, where it's just a bunch of women having a big chat, all kinds of different um, personalities, different, um, yeah, just coming from different places, but all looking at different aspects of identity. So it's a real sense of it being a kind of a conversation that you might have with a group of friends, um, but looking at kind of how the world can distort our identity and what Jesus says. Um, so have a look at that, Identity Theft. And then lastly, the one to recommend um, is a book called Real Change, and it's a six-week course um, that really takes you through the things that we struggle with and how the gospel completely transforms those to help us live like Jesus. And it's phenomenal. We did it last term in our mum's small group on a Friday morning. And I can honestly say, and it was written by Helen, but I would say this even if she wasn't here, that I think it's probably one of the most helpful books I read last year, just um, in terms of very, very practically showing us how the gospel transforms the way we for me, for example, the thing I was really looking at was the way I spoke to my children. And uh, I found it unbelievably helpful. I didn't get it right <laughs> all the time, but it's a process of change. But it's a fabulous book. You can do it by yourself. You can do it with a group of people. Um, have a look at all those books. There's many more. But do kind of use this time to perhaps take one of them and kind of commit to, to reading it over the next few weeks. As I said, it's coffee time. So there's tea and coffee and everything out there. There's also cake and fruit 
cake's going to add to our wobbly bits, but that's all good because we're embracing them. Um, we've got about half an hour, so do take the time to go and enjoy tea and coffee, enjoy a chat, and we'll see you back here at quarter to 12.